We got Joseph Pierce teaching the Iliad. I think this one's going to be epic. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your host, John Johnson. Hey friends, welcome back to the Magnus Podcast, where with your help, we are liberating the liberal arts, ransoming the captives of broken system, and thinking up great slogans to promote our mission like those. But even greater than the slogans is the education that's available for free right now in the Magnus Fellowship. We're serving over 500 fellows eager for learning. You can become one today at magnusinstitute.org. It really is free. It's live. It's interactive. Courses are led by senior fellows whose books you might have read, people you might have heard of, and most importantly, great teachers. Courses are limited to just 25 students to preserve intimacy. And really, there's a beautiful cross-pollination that you can experience in real time in the Magnus Fellowship. We're going to be announcing new courses soon, and most of those fill up on a first-come, first-served basis. Every course we've offered so far has been full to the brim. And we're really trying to offer more and more courses to keep up with the demand. That's where this great campaign comes in, a season of giving that makes what we are doing for you possible. It's really not a surprise to anybody who's taken the classes, the value of what's there throughout the eight weeks that a class happens. But our cost for these courses is about $7,000, give or take, just to give you a peek behind the curtain. It's $7,000 just to pull one of these off. And we say, here, here it is for free. So fellows are generally very generous in responding to that. And to that, we are so appreciative. It's the only thing that keeps our lights on and keeps our work going here and keeps more classes coming. We want to offer more and more courses because we keep getting more and more fellows. So help us. I, I can promise you there, there are a few better places to give your hard-earned money, especially in, in this economic climate, in this climate where you have so little options, where you know that your money is being stewarded well. I promise you it's being stewarded well by Team AMI. It's a very small school, uh, no endowment or anything like that, four employees or something. I'm not even one of them. I'm giving you this podcast right now out of the goodness of my heart. So, And I'm happy to do it because it's a good mission. And uh, thank you. Thank you for making our work possible. And I forgot you're here for Joseph Pierce, who's teaching a class uh, in the fellowship right now on Homer's Iliad. We're going to bring you a highlight lecture discussion from that course today. So please enjoy it. Here you go. Okay. So before we do anything else, I want to ask who is Homer? You know, and, and people say that home was more than one person. And we have this idea that uh, it was originally an oral work uh, that at some point was written down. That may, may in some sense be true, but I'm a skeptic. I do believe that Homer um, was using stories that already existed. He was de- taking from what Tolkien would call the cauldron of story, those tales already out there. But this this appears to me to be a um, a very I would say seamless as imperfect, but a very um, harmonious and integrated work of literature. And no work of literature is written by committee. Um, it's very rare as a decent work of literature, even written by more than one author, and very very rarely more than two. 
So I, I believe Homer was one person. It's possible he was two people in the sense that it might be a different Homer that wrote the Odyssey to the Homer that wrote the Iliad. I also suspect the same person wrote both because uh, the world doesn't throw up geniuses that often. <laughs> um, uh, you know, Homer's probably the greatest writer until Dante comes along, um, uh, almost what, 1,500, well, no, almost 2,000 years later. Um, so I think the, the, the chance of there being two Homers at the same sort of time uh, is unlikely. So I actually think there was one Homer who wrote both epics, we don't know exactly when he was writing. The, 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 the experts seem to think it was between 850 and 700 BC. Um, the fall of Troy, however, was sometime between 1334 and 1150 BC. So in other words, um, 500 or so years earlier. So Homer is already writing about something which is ancient history, uh, legend. Uh, so um, there was obviously much less uh, published material. There's no printing, of course. So a lot of this would be oral, uh, folk tales told about various characters. So this is not a work of history. It's a work of historical fiction uh, based upon folklore about something that happened half a millennium earlier, 500 years earlier. Now, what about Greek philosophy? Because the, the golden age of Greek philosophy doesn't happen until between 450 and 350 BC. So in other words, 300 years or so after Homer. But I would argue that quite clearly the culture in which Homer is writing is a highly philosophical culture because there are already there are great philosophical questions being asked and answered here about the meaning of life, the meaning of suffering, uh, the relationship between man and the gods, um, uh, etc. So I, I think there's a great deal of philosophy in Homer, and quite clearly he lived in a philosophical culture. One thing you have to remember, this is crucial for our understanding of history, and indeed reality, is that there are two definitions of history. One is the, uh, the accumulation of documentary evidence. Right, that which is there for historians to pour over, read, and, and make um, conclude take conclusions from, draw conclusions from. But the other definition of history is all that which has happened in the past. And of course, everything that's happened in the past is much greater than that which has been documented, particularly the further back in the past you get. So really, you have two types of history. You have if the, 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 the latter understanding of history is everything's happened in the past is like a, uh, should we say, a 5,000 piece jigsaw puzzle. The former definition of history, only the uh, documentary uh, data is all that counts, is like having 50 pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. You put them together as best you can, but you're not going to have the whole picture. I say that because, you know, it's, it's easy for us to think that before Homer, there was nothing because he's the first great writer in the Western tradition. And that's clearly not the case. He's writing about things that are happening 500 years earlier, for starters. But also we might think, well, philosophy didn't really begin until Plato came along. And clearly, I would argue that Plato is the first, uh, or Socrates, if you like, through Plato, is the first philosopher that we know a lot about. OK, so uh, and, and therefore his impact his influence upon history, 
has been huge because we know a lot about him and he's impacted other people who have had ideas that are similar or in conflict with. But that doesn't mean there wasn't philosophers prior to Socrates and that some of them might have been great philosophers, it's just that they have not survived to posterity. So I, I, I'm inviting you to see. Uh, so I'm inviting us to, to read the epic theologically and philosophically, um, because I think that's what Homer's doing. And if we, if we don't do that, I don't think we're, we are actually going as deep as Homer intends us to go. All right, this is one or two of the major characters. Hector is, of course, the principal defender in a military sense of Troy. Achilles is the tragic hero, the hero whose tragic flaw um, causes, if you like, the destructive aspects of the plot. Agamemnon is the king. Menelaus is the king's brother who was wronged by Paris, who eloped with Helen. And because one of the one of the problems of most modern criticism, most modern critics and most modern teaching of the Iliad is they try to humanize it in the sense of de-divinizing it. That's the right word. In other words, by removing the gods. Now, the gods are sort of almost an embarrassment to most modern readers, most modern academic readers of the epic. They're sort of figments of the men's imagination. It's really about men and the gods are sort of distraction. Well, that's not, Homer doesn't allow us that reading. You can only have that reading of, of the Iliad if you're consciously misreading it, <laughs> if you're consciously just throwing out all the other evidence for, for, for an objective reading, reading what's actually there, not what we might want to be there. I do just want to stress again about Xenia and about the breaking of this golden rule of Xenia. Xenia is spelled X-E-N-I-A, um, where uh, it basically re refers to foreigners or strangers, as in xenophobia, the fear of foreigners or strangers. And basically, Xenia was the, um, the Greek code of hospitality. We might, at a stretch, liken it to the Christian commandment to love thy neighbor. But certainly, uh, the Greeks understood the, uh, the ethical basis for, first of all, the... Uh, the responsibility of a host to show hospitality to a guest, including a stranger, but also, and of course, going with that, uh, the responsibility of the guest to behave uh, in conformity uh, to the laws of hospitality um, to the host, towards the host. And it's the breaking of that law of Xenia, if you like, which is the original sin, which causes the war. Um, so we do, if you like, have an original sin within the context of the story, and that is Paris's elopement um, with, uh, with Helen uh, while he is a guest uh, of Helen's husband, Menelaus. So uh, this is what sets the disastrous, destructive chain of events in motion that leads to the siege uh, of Troy and the nine plus years of war. Okay, that's all I want to say by way of introduction. I'm now going to plunge into the text. And again, you know, if you've got my edition I suggested, this one, Iliad of Homer, uh, Richmond Latimore's um, translation, um, beginning book one's on page 59. I'm going to read the first seven lines. Sing, 
goddess, the anger of Pedis's son, Achilles, and its devastation, which put pains thousandfold upon the Achaeans. Hurled in their multitudes to the house of Hades, strong souls of heroes, but gave their bodies to be the delicate feasting of dogs, of all birds, and the will of Zeus was accomplished since that time when first there stood in division of conflict, Atreus's son, the lord of men, and brilliant Achilles. Okay, so let's look at this. First of all, there's no mention actually of um, Paris or Helen, right? Helen, as we learn from Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra, is the face that launched a thousand ships. Uh, and clearly that it is that original sin which has caused the war. But it's not, this is not about the war. The war, if you like, is the backdrop. But it's about, as we're told here, the anger of Achilles and its destructiveness with devastation. Um, actually, I want to go back thing. The first two words, seeing goddess. Well, this is, of course, uh, he's seeing, sometimes translated as seeing muse, with a capital M. Uh, the muses, of course, were the uh, were the goddesses of inspiration, of creative inspiration. So Homer begins with a prayer. He doesn't say, I'm a great storyteller. This is all me, uh, all my power, um, all my will. Uh, he asks for divine supernatural intervention. He's asking for help. He's asking for the gift of creativity from a Christian perspective. He's asking for grace. And one of the things we'll be doing, by the way, in this is looking at the extent to, to which the pagan Greeks uh, and their theology and understanding of the gods harmonizes with or conflicts with uh, the Christian understanding of theology. I would say I'll actually take one step back here because I, I, I'm going to confess my own approach. Um, and it's very similar to the approach of, of C.S. Lewis. So I'm in good company. In a, a work by C.S. Lewis that very few people have read, natural fact, might I request you either type Y or N or yes or no if you prefer. If you've read C.S. Lewis's work, The Pilgrim's Regress, it's a book that even C.S. Lewis lovers haven't read, or many haven't even heard of. The nose are winning. Nose are winning by a long way. <laughs> not yet. That, that not yet shows the right attitude. <laughs> no, nope, uh, heard of it. So I think only one person that's responded has actually read it. So I rest my case uh, a bit. So uh, one person and a bit have <laughs> have read it. Um, so uh, let me in that. I'm not going to talk about the whole work, except to say that it's um, an allegorical representation of c.s lewis's intellectual conversion to christianity it's like an autobiography in a story so very worth reading an early, an early work of his shortly after his conversion but the key well, the reason i'm mentioning here is that there's a character in it called father history and the god is called the landlord and the landlord's own children are the jews and the landlord's children are the only people that can read says father history so what does God do with the illiterate masses, right? The Gentiles that no longer have this uh, relationship with God uh, based upon the covenant, based upon the ability to read God's will. Well, 
Father History says that, that, in, that because they couldn't read, God, the landlord, sends them pictures. In other words, the stories, the mythology uh, of uh, the Gentiles prior to the coming of Christ are, in some sense, as Tolkien would say, splintered fragments of the one true light that comes from God. They're not lies. Of course, they don't contain the fullness of truth. How can they? This, this, these are being written uh, uh, before the time of Christ. Um, and uh, obviously, they're not be fully Christian. And they have the benefit of the, the fullness of Christian revelation in the gospel. But uh, the point is that the gospel was the Christ's coming comes in history at a time when history is itself ripe for his coming. So if you like that the covenant with the Jews has been and their understanding of who God is and their relationship with God has matured. And so God comes in the fullness of time as prophesied. But for the Gentiles, we have all of these stories. We also have Greek philosophy, um, Plato and Aristotle. And it's no surprise, actually, that St. Paul finds the Gentiles in many ways, uh, uh, a more fertile ground for evangelization and conversion than the Jews, many of whom misunderstood the covenant and were obstinate in the old beliefs and refusing to accept uh, Christ as the, as, the, as the Messiah. So, in other words, that, that these pagan myths, I mean, obviously Plato baptizes, sorry, Augustine baptizes Plato, Aristotle baptizes um, Aquinas baptizes Aristotle. Um, so we have Christian philosophy, if you like, as a baptism of, of Greek philosophy. But as we see in, in, in great Christian epics, uh, such as The Lord of the Rings, such as Dante's Divine Comedy, such as works such as Chaucer, uh, uh, works of Chaucer, uh, there is this engagement with the pagan uh, myths, the pagan stories. Okay. So that's where I'm at here. There's going to be a big differences, of course, but there's going to be, I think, a desire for truth and goodness and beauty. And first and foremost, Homer has an understanding of grace, an understanding of creativity being a gift from the gods. And he prays for that. OK, what do you, what do you want the goddess to sing? Sing the anger of Pedis, the son Achilles and its devastation. So anger has devastating consequences. Um, Achilles' anger is, a, is itself a consequence of his pride. In a nutshell, this is a story about pride preceding a fall. And in that sense, of course, echoes Adam and Eve. And what does this do? It, when it puts pain thousandfold upon the Achaeans. In other words, it causes suffering not merely to Achilles, but to his friends and allies, many of whom are killed in direct consequence of his anger and the devastation it causes. But throughout all this, the will of Zeus is accomplished. That there's an overarching providence at work in all of this, um, that the sinner and the consequences of sin does not override the will of God. Somehow or other, the will of God providentially triumphs over the sins of men. 
So the work, I would argue, is, is, is showing us that. In fact, that's what home is telling us here. This is what this is going to be about. And it's about not, not, not uh, Paris and Helen, but about the conflict between Achilles and Agamemnon, the king, the leader of the Greek armies. And then we're told um, that what's caused here is that a priest of Apollo, Chryses, uh, offers a ransom for the release of his daughter, Chryseis, who had been taken by Agamemnon as a war prize. We should once say up front here, of course, we're all going to feel somewhat uncomfortable about women being taken as war prizes. Men are killed, women are taken as prizes, right? Neither is very pleasant. Um, <laughs> um, but so Chryseis is, is basically Agamemnon's war uh, prize. Chryseis, her father, pays the, the customary ransom for her return. Um, Agamemnon breaks the rules of uh, uh, decorum and refuses to re return the, uh, the woman, uh, even though all the rest of the, the Achaeans, all the rest of the Greeks, cried out in favour that, of course, he should do this. In consequence, Christ is the priest of Apollo, prays to Apollo, and Apollo sends curses and plagues upon the people. Uh, and then the wise, this plays out in the rest of book one. Uh, uh, we, we won't have time to read every passage. So I'm just summarizing that, uh, that the wise then say this is a direct consequence of Agamemnon angering the gods in his refusal to play by the rules of decorum here, uh, crisis that paid the customary ransom. But one thing we see here, Homer uses the, uh, the plot device of metaphor. And in book 23, we see how he uses it to actually explain everything in a, in a, in a scene which is usually overlooked. But here we see that in this dispute over a woman, which is ultimately unjust, uh, we have the cause of conflict. So this uh, overarching original sin within the story is a microcosm in the main plot um, of Helen's and Paris's uh, act of immorality in, in, uh, against Menelaus. Okay, the act of adultery, elopement, theft, the breaking of the law of Xenia. So basically, we're seeing played out here in microcosm in this story, what is being played out in macrocosm in the whole war for the last nine years. So we're getting a theme developing right from the beginning. Now let's move on. And where I've, I've talked about this already. But we see argument on selfishness as we work our way through it. But then Achilles, who's angry with Agamemnon from the very beginning, says on, I'll give line numbers uh, from now, we put one still. Achilles here says, never, sorry, line 164, 63, never, when the Achaeans sack some world fantasy talk of the Trojans, do I have a prize that's equal to your prize? So if Agamemnon is selfish, prideful, arrogant, if it's, uh, if it's disrespectful towards the gods and their priests, uh, Agamemnon is sorry Achilles, who's now in in, in conflict with with uh, Agamemnon over this issue, is himself envious, selfish. Um, why is it you get all the best prizes? 
basically. When he, you know, uh, and of course, then Agamemnon eventually is forced to give back Chryseis because of the plague, the pestilence, the anger of the gods. Um, but he says that, and that if I have to give her back, I am going to take Achilles' favorite, favorite uh, war prize, Briseis. So two wrongs evidently make a right here. Um, Achilles claims that he loves her. We'll, we'll discover later in the work the extent to which that's true or otherwise. So then when Briseis is taken by, by Agamemnon, Achilles sulks, he's angry, and he uses his advantage because he happens to be fortunate enough to have a goddess as a mother that comes in handy. He basically prays to her um, and says, go to Zeus and ask for Zeus basically to bring devastation upon his own side. Think about this. Let's go to actually here, um, page four, line 407. Sit beside him and take his knees and remind him of these things now. If perhaps he might be willing to help the Trojans and pin the Achaeans back against the ships and the water, dying so that thus they may all have profit of their own king. And Atreus's son, wide-ruling Agamemnon, may recognize his madness. He did no honor to the best of the Achaeans. In other words, me. <laughs> um, so think about this. This Achilles is a warrior, a soldier in a war. He's actually using his advantage um, as being the, 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 the son of a goddess to ask for God to kill his own people, to kill his own side, to have the opposing side be victorious, at least until uh, Agamemnon learns his lesson and comes begging to uh, Achilles. This, this is quite by no other definition, treason. It's an act of treachery, not just against the king, but against his own side, in a war. Thetis is not happy with this at all, but reluctantly, she says, I will go to Cloud Dark Olympus and ask this thing of Zeus, who delights in the thunder, perhaps he will do it. So she doesn't think it's a good idea. In fact, she thinks it's disastrous. She thinks, amongst other things, it will be fatal in the long term to, doesn't think, she, 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 she knows that if, he, if uh, Achilles insists upon pursuing this line of action, it will prove fatal to him further down the line. It's self-destructive. So in winning the destruction of others, Achilles is actually destroying himself. But in his pride, he won't listen to reason. So how does, um, how does Zeus respond? Line 517. Deeply disturbed, Zeus, who gathers the clouds, answered her, this is a disastrous matter when you set me in conflict with Hera. So one thing about Zeus is he, uh, is he has a very dysfunctional marriage with Hera. Um, uh, and uh, that's one of the, the, if you like, subplots um, within the story. And Hera is completely on the side of the Greeks. Um, largely, uh, I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm going to avoid the temptation about this to go off on to tangents with the wider Greek backdrop of, 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 of myths that, that Homer's drawing upon that are not in the text. It's a bit like 
reading the Lord of the Rings and and um, and keep bringing in uh, the twelve books of the history of Middle Earth, which uh, you know no one was privy to when they first read the work. So, um, but basically, uh, Hera and Athena do not like Aphrodite, who favoured Paris. So there's an element of of, of this envy uh, going on here. But Hera, in any respect. Uh, supports the Greeks passionately and hates the Trojans and hates Paris in particular. So Zeus knows that if he grants this request, uh, he's going to, uh, to to Thetis, he's going to cause his own problems. There's going to be ramifications in heaven, if you like, on Olympus. But then he says, 524, words of Zeus, see then, I will bend my head in other words, in ascent, that you may believe me. For this among the immortal gods is the mightiest witness I can give, and nothing I do shall be vain nor revocable, nor a thing unfulfilled when I bend my head in ascent to it. So what Zeus is claiming here, and we'll find out as we read the epic, the extent to which this claim is justified by reality, is that he is effectively omnipotent. That his will be done irrespective of any opposition by Hera, his wife, or any other god, or anybody else. That when he bends his head in the center to something, it will be an irre- irrevocable, uh, it will be fulfilled. Um, so, uh, Megan, I'll ask your question uh, in a moment, but Mark has a question. Um, hi. Uh, so going back to that first line here, you know, that it's the anger of Achilles, basically. I mean, that's the whole story. I mean, I was just thinking, I don't know the whole book, just this first third that we, we read here. And we don't, I was going to say, we almost don't hear that much of Achilles pride and anger, except for that just part that you just read right there. And it's almost justified. Agamemnon, if I said that right, stole his war prize, and so he's he's angry right there. Um, yeah, it, it's true. He, you can he has an absolute right to be angry. I've I, I read one line at least from before prior to that showed that he's as selfish um, as Agamemnon. So it's not as if he's a completely humble victim. Um, but um, if so, if you're wrong, does that give you the right to? If you have the power to ask that the, that the gods destroy your own side in a war, uh, that, uh, that that your allies are all exterminated to, to assuage your own feeling of fury. So, yes, he can feel angry, but there's a point at which, you know, even righteous anger, we have to temper, you know, temperance, prudence, self-restraint, self-sacrifice. That you know, even if we feel justified in our anger, does not give us the right to bring down a, a unjust actions upon the innocent. Because even if Agamemnon is wrong, why should the rest of the Greeks suffer in consequence? So yes, I agree with you. But it, his reaction is very much, by any stretch of the imagination, an overreaction. Okay, what about fate, Megan? A uh, good question. And this is, by the way, this is the million-dollar question. Uh, which we which can go out forever because you say what about fate? I would I would I would um, just change the middle word to what is fate because um, uh, for instance in Beowulf I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent in Beowulf the old English word 
beard, W-Y-R-D, from which we get the modern English word weird, is often uh, um, translated as fate. Uh, whereas in actual fact, the Anglo-Saxons did not mean that at all. They meant something which is really weird, <laughs> literally. In other words, that, uh, that there's a providential, every action has providential consequences, uh, including on our, on our neighbours. I mean, the, the way that is sometimes put is that all of us, in, everybody's in a web, uh, a, a mystical, supernatural web. So every, everything we do is going to impact and pull upon other people. Those closest to us will be pulled more. Those furthest, like, like, you know, like, like the ripples of a stream, the further away you are, the less the impact will be. But there's nothing we can do that's not going to have ramifications to others. Well, that's not fate in the sense of there's no free will, uh, that, that I, neither gods nor men have any power over this sort of deterministic mechanism uh, which makes things happen irrespective. If we believe fate in that absolute sense, then there's no freedom, no free will, no morality. Uh, that uh, that uh, Why is there um, uh, a correlation between the sin of Agamemnon and the consequences and the sin of Achilles and the consequences and the sin of Paris and Helen and the consequences? Uh, um, so again, that, that this whole, whole idea of some sort of mechanism, this is a very deterministic, very modern and even postmodern understanding of reality, which is not the Greek understanding, I would argue. Um, let's see what else we have. Yes, Father McMahon, uh, Angus Joseph must be mortified precisely. We can't allow, you know, I, if, if we allow our passions to get the better of us, we stop acting rationally, we stop acting rationally, we stop acting, acting virtuously. Because virtue and reason, sanity and sanctity are ultimately the same thing. Does it matter that he's the son of a goddess? His anger seems more than other humans. Um, well, he, I mean, yeah, he is. I mean, th th there is this thing, uh, there's this, 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 this middle stratum in Homer. You have mortals, you have immortals, you have demigods. Now, the demigods are mortal, um, and their immortality is bestowed upon them but they're mortal, they can die, but they do have supernatural power. So uh, in this case, of course, uh, the very fact that he can ask his mother to go directly to God, <laughs> to Zeus, and intercede for him is, a, is, an, is, is definitely supernatural power. But he also has supernatural might as a warrior. Um, and his power is not merely mortal. It's, it's, it's almost superhuman. So, uh, so it doesn't matter that he's the son of a goddess, he's a demigod, and that impacts our understanding of who he is. Um, I've always been very curious relationship between the gods and fate in this work. Are they subject to fate themselves? Well, in this work, Megan, again, I, I would invite you to read it and come to your own conclusions, but it's important to look at this work as this work. So don't be confused by trying to read every other work and allow that to inform this. This is a work of, of, of art that I believe was written by one person and it's an integrated work of art. We have to make our own mind up to what extent is, is Zeus subject to fate, for instance. Um, that's a good question. Um, if, if Zeus is subject to fate, then ultimately everybody's subject to fate, right? So uh, good question. And uh, I, I, my answer, by the way, is no, he isn't. Um, that the basically the freedom of the will, both in gods and men, is crucial to understanding of the cosmos that Homer presents to us. But uh, let's allow the story to to inform us of that. Um, so we just about so just one more quote from the words of Zeus to his wife Hera. 
So line 565, Zeus speaking. But go then, sit down in silence and do as I tell you. For fear all the gods, as many as are on Olympos, can do nothing if I come close and lay my unconquerable hands upon you. Well, apart from the fact we might see Zeus as an abusive husband here, let's put that to one side. Um, what he's saying here is if he decides to, to uh, exert his will upon uh, Hera, um, there's nothing any of the gods can do um, to prevent him. Not just any of the gods, but actually all the gods. In other words, by implication, if all of them united together against me, they could not stop my will being accomplished against you or by implication or by extension, anything else. So there's a claim in the book one by Zeus that he is omnipotent. Okay. So I suppose if we want, it's like um, a mystery story. In some sense, most literature is like a mystery story. There are, there are, there are, problems to be solved uh, and, and questions to be answered. And, and one of the, the problems to be solved, the questions to be answered, which we've been invited to ponder at the beginning of book one is, is Zeus correct? Now, is he just saying this? Is it boastfulness? Uh, is it pride? Arrogance? Or is it true? Um is honor worth more than winning the war? It seems Achilles is angry because Agamemnon took something from him, his honor. In comparison to all the lives of his fellow Greeks, is that a small thing? Um, right, exactly, Brian. The, uh, one, of the, one of the very interesting and intriguing things about this work is what does Homer believe about concepts such as honor? Um, if, if honor uh, is... Uh, leads to anger and that anger leads to devastation uh, and the will of, will of Zeus is accomplished, it gives us, if you like, the answers to that question. And the answer, as, we, as, as, as things play themselves out, is no, that, that Achilles' own personal honour, if it's basically uh, rooted in his own personal pride, which leads to his anger and leads to treachery against his own people, is it might be worth more to him, but it's not worth more to God. <laughs> In other words, it's uh, something which is reprehensible and sinful. All right, let's continue with book two. So at the beginning of book two, we see Zeus sends evil dream to Agamemnon. But here, you know, here we have Zeus sending dream, and dream is capitalized. And other places, so is hate. Um, and, and, and other, should we say, I don't think emotion is the right word. It's, it's, it's stronger than emotion. Um, but is dream merely here a personified abstraction? In other words, it's just, this is Homer presenting us with an idea of dream. Or is dream in Homer's mind a real god who um, has power over dreams, as with Queen Mab in, in, in um, Romeo and Juliet? Um, Either way, I think we can say that Zeus has put the dream into Agamemnon's sleep. And certainly Christians as well as, uh, as, well as pagans uh, and indeed the Jews of the Old Testament believe uh, that, that, that God can speak to us through dreams. But at night 35, so he spoke and went away and left Agamemnon there, believing things in his heart that were not to be accomplished. 
For he thought that on that very day he would take Priam City, fool who knew nothing of all the things Zeus planned to accomplish, Zeus, who yet was minded to visit tears and sufferings on projects of the nans alike in the strong encounters. So here we have Zeus, if you like, manipulating things providentially um, beyond the will or ken or understanding of individual protagonists. And here we might certainly believe and would be invited to believe perhaps, um, at least in our modern reading, whether or not this was Homer's intention is another thing, that, that Zeus is evil, um, uh, that he uh, that he's being deliberately deceptive. He's been deliberately deceptive, but for what reason? Um, is it for a greater good? Now, of course, Christians believe you can't use evil means to, to a greater good. Um, but anyway, so I'm putting that there. As, as, and then we have rumor, line 93, 94, 93. Rumor walked blazing among them, Zeus's messenger. Okay, so Zeus has evil dream and rumor moving around as if they are actual gods, supernatural beings doing the will of Zeus. And then powerful, line 100, powerful Agamemnon stood up holding the scepter. Hephaestus had wrought him carefully. Hephaestus gave it to Zeus, the king, the son of Kronos, and Zeus in turn gave it to Curia Argefontes, and Lord Hermes gave it to Pelops, driver of horses. And Pelops again gave it to Atreus, the shepherd of the people. Atreus dying left it to Thyestes of the rich flocks. Thyestes left it in turn to Agamemnon to carry and to be lord of many lands and over all Argos. Here we have a genealogy, of course, a genealogy, which we might remind us of some of the genealogies in the Old Testament or indeed in, in St. Matthew's Gospel. Um, and here it establishes um, Agamemnon's authority, his kingship. And where does the authority of kingship come from? Does it come from the fact he's the mightiest warrior or does it come from the fact that he is the most ruthless, that he's the biggest gangster? Um, is it because of Machiavellianism? No, his authority comes from God, a one nation under God. Um, because it ends up with Agamemnon, where does it begin? That Hephaestus of God gave this scepter, the, the, the symbol of, of authority, of kingship, to Zeus, right? The king of heaven. And Zeus then has it in turn down through divinities eventually to um to mortals in other words that we have a theology here of politics which is that authority political authority comes from the gods uh and uh not from men not from the most ruthless but basically the only reason agamemnon is king is he carries the scepter which has divine authority in it kingship is something which is under god and from god so Agamemnon's words, like 377 in book two, Agamemnon said, for I and Achilles fought together for a girl's sake in words, violent encounter, and I was the first to be angry. Okay, so when we, again, the use of metaphor, we can see this quarrel between Agamemnon and Achilles over a girl to be a metaphor for the quarrel between Menelaus and Paris over a girl, over Helen. So 
if there's a recurring feature here that a disordered relationship um, uh, with respect to women is uh, destructive to peace in society and peace between people. Uh, so that that is this big quote for girl's sake being a recurring theme here. 484. Tell me now, you muses who have your home on Olympus, for you who are goddesses are there and you know all things, and we have heard only the rumour of it and know nothing. Who then of those were the chief men and lords of the Danaeans? So we had this earlier genealogy, if you like, which established Agamemnon's divine authority as king. But now we have, all the way through to page 96 here, so for... I don't know how many lines for a lot, you know, uh, two or three hundred lines. It's a whole list of the major players, the major characters in the Greek army. Uh, I'm not going to say that it's not the most interesting part of the book, but I would certainly say that the most interesting part of the Old Testament is not the long list of genealogies, at least not for me. Maybe that's just me. And then on page 786, now to the Trojans. And it's a much shorter list of the Trojans than the lot list of the, the, the Greeks to the end of book two. But it begins with uh, Hector, uh, 816. Tall Hector of the Shining Helm was leader of the Trojans, Priam's son, and with him far the best and the bravest fighting member are than eager to fight with the spear's edge. And then he gives the list of the others. But Hector is preeminent. I mean, he's a prince, not a king. He's one of Priam's sons. Priam's the king of Troy. Um, but Hector, of course, is the main is the main Trojan with respect to the story. Uh, various things going on here in terms of characters. Obviously, we have Menelaus versus Paris, with Helen being the cause of the bone of contention, shall we say. But we also have Achilles versus Agamemnon, which is obviously what's playing itself out and the original sin within the epic. But we also have Achilles versus Hector, because these are the two most powerful warriors. And it's almost as if, you know, um, I hate to use analogies with, with modern Hollywood, especially if you don't watch too many films. But, you know, if you see a certain type of film and you have these two characters who are quite clearly the two strongest and the most ferocious warriors you, and, and they're on opposite sides. A lot of other people might die but in the end you know that these these two are going to have to come together all right and we have to find out who ultimately is the most powerful so that's another aspect of it so hector being introduced here in this list let's move on to book three so line two of it the Trojans came on with clamor and shouting like wildfowl like a bunch of chickens but the Achaeans, line eight, but the Achaeans men went silently, breathing valour, stubbornly minded, each in his heart to stand by the others. I've read criticism, critics, classical critics, who cite these opening lines of book three as proof that uh, Homer has, has an Hellenic bias. In other words, that he is favours the Greeks. Well, you know, that would seem reasonable enough in the sense that Homer is a Greek, right? And this is uh, uh, about a war between his own country, if you like, and another country. But I am going to suggest, or at least invite us to, to consider that the whole work uh, does not show uh, 
Homer as sort of some sort of jingoistic, my country right or wrong, but actually looks at moral issues that transcend what we might call shallow patriotism. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said, you know, saying my country right or wrong is like saying my mother drunk or sober. Um, clearly, if your mother's drunk, you don't you don't desert her, but nor the, nor nor do you join her in uh, in uh, the debauch of drunkenness. You sober her up, or at least try to. So, um, you know, I, I don't think the home is merely a shallow, you know, like defenders of the British Empire, you know, the shallow poetry that uh, will have your whatever the the American equivalent is. I believe that he's much deeper than that in his understanding of things. But we again, I invite you to either disagree or agree with me based upon the next uh, three weeks that we're discussing this work. And then in the battle, we have two people coming together, head to head in the battle. Alexandros, which is another name for, uh, for Paris, and Menelaos. And of course, the connection here is Helen. And Paris comes forward. He said, you know, we know, we know from other parts of the, of the epic, he's a strong warrior. He's perfectly capable of fighting well. And he's coming forward boastfully. And Menelaus, when he sees him, that's the man he wants. He doesn't care about anything else now. This is the man that ran off with his wife. And this is the man he wants. Forget the rest of the war. He's mine, right? So we have here this description. Menelaus, line 23, was glad like a lion who comes on a mighty carcass in his hunger, chancing upon the body of a horned stag or wild goat who eats it eagerly, although against him are hasting the hounds in their speed and the stalwart young men. What's interesting about this, as I said, what we don't get in classical epic is uh, uh, an omniscient uh, invitation to go inside people's heads where we can sort of understand everything they're thinking but what we do we observe and then Homer uses metaphor uh, to give us a psychological understanding of someone's motives through analogy so Menelaus is like a, a lion and he's going to have his prey, even though he knows that around him are hounds and behind them men who are hunting him. He's going to have this irrespective. That's his hunger. In this case, of course, his hunger for, depending upon how you want to word it, vengeance, justice. And again, but there is a moral dimension. Two lines further down. Why? He's thinking to punish the robber. Right, the man who stole his wife and also an awful lot of his other uh, possessions in the process it wasn't just the elopement and adultery, it was also straightforward theft of Menelaus's uh, wealth. And then we have another one here, 33, another metaphor. As a man who's come on a snake in the mountain valley suddenly steps back and the shivers come over his body and he draws back and away, cheeks seized with a green pallor. This is Paris's response to the lion. It's like a man that jumps back in fear of a snake, shivering with fear. So if we're looking for, you know, who should we sympathize with here? Immediately after, um, you know, we, 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 we're talking about Trojans and Achaeans. This seems to be reinforced. 
Menelaus is in the right. He's a courageous lion. He wants to do justice. He wants to punish the robber. And the robber himself, when he sees the lion, it's like now the metaphor is a snake. He uh, shrivels back uh, with a green pallet, turns pale with fear, and slinks back in amongst his own men to escape the lion with Menelaus. So far, we can see this all very two-dimensional. Uh, you know, that the Greeks are good and the Trojans are bad. But then we have these wonderful words, very important words in the whole epic, I would suggest. Hector says to his brother, line 39, evil Paris, beautiful, woman crazy, cajoling, better had you never been born or killed unwedded. Are there strong words here? You know, from Hector, and again, as, as, the, as, the, as, the, as the epic continues, we get more of an idea of people's characters. We don't really know most of these people yet. They've just been introduced to us. But Hector turns on Paris, who's just slunking cowardice away from the man he's wronged, and says, evil Paris. Well, first of all, he's evil. He's on the wrong side. He's beautiful. No one denies that Paris is uh, good-looking, right? He's even has the uh, goddesses uh, lusting after him. So he's obviously a good-looking young man, but he's woman-crazy. He's driven mad with lust. He's irrational. Cajoling, he would do anything to get his own way. And as far as Hex is concerned, it would be better if he'd never been born. And bearing in mind, of course, all of this, nine years so far of war, of siege, it's a consequence of Paris being beautiful and woman crazy and cajoling. From the point of view of the rest of the people of Troy, it would have been better if he'd never been born or killed unwedded or been killed before you ever went and met Helen. And it, this whole speech, by the way, I recommend um, if you haven't read it already, but we don't have time to read it all. Let's go down to line 56, though. So this is, again... This is the, the end of uh, Hector's, uh, if you like, tirade against his brother. No, but the Trojans are cowards in truth. Else long before this, you had worn a mantle of flying stones for the wrong you did us. So here we have Hector, who you know, is ultimately going to be seen as the, the hero. But the Trojans side. we are wrong. We are on the wrong side. So basically, this is the, in, in this war, you know, they have a just grievance. If this is a just war, they are the right side. Hector, of course, is going to defend his people and his wife and his child and his family. But he knows that this is that, 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 that they are being besieged because of a, a crime which one of their own number had committed. And he's basically saying we as a people are cowards in truth because we should have stoned you to death for what you've done, for the wrong you did us. So it's not just the wrong, the sin, right? The sin is not just sin against Menelaus in uh, eloping with Menelaus' wife and stealing from him. It's the sin he's done to his own people and the consequences of that. So this, how does Paris respond? 
says, Hector, seeing you have scolded me rightly, he's not even saying that you're wrong. He knows what he's done is wrong. Not beyond measure. You haven't even been, you know, gone further than you should. It's, that's all. It's all just. But he says, still, your heart forever is weary this like an axe blade driven by a man's strength through the timber. One who, well-skilled, hews a piece for a ship driven on by the force of a man's strength. Such is the heart in your breast, unshakable. In other words, why don't you just learn to, you know, um, should we say, uh, lighten up a bit. You might be right, but, you know, why, why be so extreme about it? Yeah, do not bring up against me the sweet favours of golden Aphrodite. So here we have Aphrodite being brought into this. And certainly in Shakespeare, there's no doubt that Venus, which is, of course, the Roman name for Aphrodite, the goddess of so-called love, of disordered love, of passionate, emotional love, um, is in, in Shakespeare, no doubt that she's always depicted as something. Well, we get the word venereal from Venus. We get the word erotic from Eros. I mean, that, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the approach that Christian would like like Shakespeare takes, and that shouldn't surprise us. But what, you know, what does approach does Homer take here? Well, in the voice of Paris, Paris is saying, listen, it's not my fault if I'm irresistible. It's not my fault if Aphrodite has made me an aphrodisiac, right, that, that no woman can resist me. And, you know, that's a sweet favour. I mean, obviously, it's, 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 it's fun, right? I mean, who would not want to be in my position? Never to be cast away are the gifts of the gods. No, that I've been given this gift by Aphrodite. It's magnificent, which they give of their own will. No man could have them for wanting them. So uh, I have this great gift of the gods. and Don't blame me for being irresistible to women. But then he says, now, though, if you wish me to fight it out and do battle, make the rest of the Trojans sit down and all the Achaeans have set me in the middle with Menelaus, the warlike, to fight together for the sake of Helen and all her possessions. That one of us who wins and is proved stronger, let him, let him take the possessions fairly and the woman and lead her homeward. But the rest of you, having cut your oaths of faith and friendship, dwell you in Troy where the soil is rich, while those others return home horse passing Argos and Achaia, the land of fair women. The land of fair women is a bit of a, <laughs> that's where Helen's from, right? Um, but he's saying, yeah, well, okay, I understand what you're saying. I get your point. Um, I'll fight man to man, hand to hand. Here we see it. My, I must admit, the one thing that obviously springs to my mind, I don't know yours, this has been going on for nine years. Why is it taking so long for Paris to actually make this suggestion or someone else to suggest it? It's a bit weird, but that's another matter. Um, so let's go on to next page. So we have a messenger, Iris, now from the gods uh, in the likeness of Helen's sister-in-law, uh, appearing to Helen, page on line 125. She came on Helen in the chamber she was weaving a great web, a red folding robe, and working into it the numerous struggles of Trojans, breakable horses, and bronze armored Achaeans, struggles that they endured for her sake at the hands of the war god. Think about that as a metaphor. We see it again in, 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 in the Odyssey, right? Where Penelope is, is weaving a burial shroud. I won't say any more about that until we get to it. But 
Helen is weaving something here. And of course, the metaphor here is, it, yeah, literally she's weaving just a tapestry, right? Um, uh, red folding robe is called here. With all the history of the war, nine years of it now, various struggles between the two sides. Well, she is weaving it. Not just, you know, literally by weaving the robe. She's the person that's caused all this just by being there. She's the catalyst for this. She's weaving it in this sense, but she's just by being there, she's weaving it. And then the, the goddess, the messenger from the god, says to her, line 136, but Menelaus the warlike and Alexandros will fight with long spears against each other for your possession. So she's being informed of this plan for a man-to-man fight to decide the issue between Menelaus, the wrong husband, and Paris. Where does Helen stand in all this? Well, first, actually, before we get that, we get that there in a moment. Let's get Priam, first of all, because important Priam's important, right? Priam is the king of Troy. He's the one with authority. Now, with authority comes responsibility. Um, he's the one that's ultimately responsible for what uh, is happening between Paris and Helen. He could order certain things, and he doesn't do so. So he, he calls to Helen, line 164, I am not blaming you. To me, the gods are blameworthy who drove upon me this sorrowful war against the Achaeans. Now that is blasphemy. You're not to blame for eloping with my son. He's not to blame for eloping with you. The gods are to blame for dumping this problem on me. I wonder if the gods are going to be happy with that. Then Helen responds, line 172, always to me, beloved father, you are feared and respected. And I wish bitter death had been what I wanted when I came hither following your son, forsaking my chamber, my kinsman, my grown child, and the loveliness of girls of my own age. It did not happen that way, and now I am worn with weeping. This now I will tell you in answer to the question you asked me. That man is Atreus' son, Agamemnon, widely powerful, at the same time a good king and a strong spear fighter, once my king's kingsman slut that I am, did this ever happen? Why did this ever happen? So she loved Priam. Priam's always shown her great respect and deference. She has no reason to blame him for anything, but she blames herself. Now, I wish that I died before I, if you like, was seduced by Paris, forsaking my chamber, my home my kinsman, my family, my grown child, my, my child, loveness of God, my own age, my friends. So you have Helen's contrition here. I would suspect, suggest there's an important ingredient in our understanding of the moral dynamic of the epic that's being uh, performed for us. Line 281. If it should be that Alexander slays Menelaus, let him keep Helen for himself and all her possessions, and we in our seafaring ships shall take our way homeward. But if the fair-haired Menelaus kills Alexandros, then let the Trojans give back Helen and all her possessions and pay also a price the Argives, which will be fitting, which among people yet to come shall be as a standard, so in legal terms, let's establish a precedent here 
so this happens again, we'll know how to handle it. You know, but the, uh, again, why had it taken over nine years to actually to come to this solution? At this point, by the way, you might be thinking of book three, it's going to be a very short epic, right? <laughs> this fight between the two, one will win and it's all over. It's much more complicated than that, as we discover, of course. Line 349. And after him, Atreus's son, Menelaus, was ready to let go the bronze spear with a prayer to Zeus, father. So this is Menelaus basically claimed the justice of his cause. Zeus, Lord, grant me to punish the man who first did me injury. Brilliant Alexandros, and beat him down under my hand's strength that any one of the men to come may shudder to think of doing evil to a kindly host who has given him friendship. This is an explicit reference, of course, to the law of Xenia. So he's asking Zeus to make this not just in teaching Paris a lesson and in bringing justice that everybody will see in the future that breaking the laws of God, particularly the laws of hospitality, um, uh, will be punished in this way. You can't get away with uh, this, this, this breaking of the law of the gods. So the prayer for justice and if you like, a uh, suggestion of, of, of the moral that the epic is, is presenting, but turning over page 364, sorry, line 364, groaning, the son of Atreus lifted his eyes to the wide sky. So it's just obviously he's thrown his spear, it hasn't, his prayer's not been answered. Father Zeus, no god beside is more baleful than you are. Here I thought to punish Alexandros for his wickedness. And now my sword is broken in my hands and the spear flew vainly out of my hands on the throat before and I have not hit him. You know, what's going on here? Now I'm in the right. You know, you're a god of justice. Well, if, you know, if you're a god of justice, why are you not helping me? However, it carries on here, line 373. So now he would have dragged him away and won glory forever. So basically, Zeus, if you like, was going to permit this victory, but had not Aphrodite, the daughter of Zeus, watched sharply. She broke the chin strap, made him made from the hide of a slaughtered bullock, and the helmet came away empty in the, the heavy hand of Atreides, in other words, um, Menelaus. He turned and made, skipped a couple of lines, he turned and made a game for his man, determined to kill him with the bronze spear. But Aphrodite caught up Paris easily since she was divine, wrapped him in a thick mist and set him down again in his own perfumed bedchamber. So Aphrodite takes him to where she's most comfortable and where he's most comfortable, back in the perfumed bedchamber where both of them do their best work. Um, so she's he, basically that Paris, if, if he's talking about man-to-man, hand-to-hand combat, uh, clearly Menelaus would have won. There's no doubt about that. There's no question about it. But Aphrodite is uh, on the side of Paris and saves him. And then let's go to line 403. And this is Helen speaking to Aphrodite. She's angry, actually, that this that the problem wasn't solved. She clearly is, is contrite and wanted Menelaus to win. Is it because Menelaus has beaten great Alexandros and wishes, hateful even as I am, to carry me homeward? He wants me back even though, you know, 
I've done what I've done. Is it for this that you stand in your treachery now beside me? So Aphrodite is the traitor. Go yourself and sit beside him, abandon, you because know, she's saying, Aphrodite is saying, go now to your husband, Paris. She's saying to hell with that. Um, go yourself and sit beside him. Abandon the God's ways. Turn your feet back never again to the path of Olympus, but stay with him forever and suffer for him and look after him until he makes you his wedded wife and make you his slave girl. You know, rather than preaching to me what a good wife I should be to him, do it yourself. See what it's like. Practice what you preach. Not I. I'm not going to him. It would be too shameful. I will not serve his bed since the Trojan women hereafter would laugh at me all. And my heart even now is confused with sorrows. And look at how Aphrodite responds. The goddess of disordered love, shall we say. Wretched girl, do not tease me lest in anger I forsake you and grow to hate you as much as now I terribly love you. Lest I encompass you in hard hate, caught between both sides, Danaeans and Trojans alike, and you wretchedly perish. All right, this is not a Christian understanding of love. Yeah. Uh, a love that can turn to hatred instantaneously as soon as uh, the lover is spurned, as soon as do what I want is rejected, the love turns to hatred instantaneously. Aphrodite's love is not anything like Christian love. And one of the questions we need to be asking ourselves here, of course, is what is Homer? Where does Homer stand in what is love? So obviously the big and ultimate question. The jury's out only in book three, at least. So she spoke, and Helen, daughter of Zeus, was frightened and went, shrouding herself about the luminous spun road, sighted unseen by the Trojan women and led by the goddess. So in fear, she is forced to return to Paris. Um, let's move on a few more lines here, 426. Helen, daughter of Zeus of the Ages, took her place there, turning her eyes away, and spoke to her lord in derision. So you come back from fighting. Oh, how I wish you had died there, beaten down by the stronger man who was once my husband. There was a time before now you boasted that you were better than warlike Menelaus in spear and hand and your own strength. Go forth now and challenge warlike Menelaus once again to fight you in combat. But no, I advise you rather let it be and fight no longer with fair-haired Menelaus, strength against strength in single combat, recklessly. You might very well go down before his spear. Okay, so she might be might have been forced by Aphrodite to return to Paris, but she's still going to give him a bit of her mind and make it perfectly clear who she prefers. And how does um, Paris respond? Lady, sense you might heart no more with in bitter reprovals. This time, Menelaus, Athena's help has beaten me. Another time I shall beat him. Why is that an outrageous lie? Well, we just know from the narrative, Aphrodite saved him from being killed. It wasn't because uh, Menelaus won with Athena's help. Though with a super, you know, and Athena can help. We find that out later in the book. She could have helped, 
but there's no evidence at all in the narrative that she did. What we do know is that basically that Paris was about to be killed, defeated, that justice was about to be done, and Aphrodite stole him away. So he's a liar on top of everything else. And he says, we have gods. And he said, another time I shall beat him. We have gods on our side also. There's an irony there because he's just been saved by the god or goddess that's on his side. And then down to 451 to finish book three. Could, yet could none of the Trojans or any renowned companions show Alexandros then to warlike Menelaus? They would not have hidden him for love if any had seen him, since he was hated among them all as dark death is hated. That. So end of book three here. None of the Trojans would have hidden Paris, their own man, from Menelaus, their enemy, because they all hate him as much as they hate dark death. So what's the view of his own people of Paris? Contempt, hatred, he's the person who's called this, caused this war. All the innocent people are dying that didn't commit the original sin because of the obstinate sinner who refuses to mend his ways. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2021. Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.